Last Sunday, we concluded the message series about the character of God. And Wednesday evening, we spent our message time, our online Bible study time, looking at how God relates to us and how we should relate to others. And, and although we have concluded this particular message series, we'll never, ever stop learning about the magnificent nature of God, which continues to be a mystery, right? How can, how can anyone care so much? How can anyone forgive so often? And how can anyone love beyond measure? And as we transition from a look at God himself to a broader view of of how understanding can and should be applied to our lives, we're going to consider first how the nature of God as a promise maker and promise keeper provides hope. Next week, we're going to begin a short series where we look at, or perhaps the word is imagine, where we imagine what the world would be like if we managed it and ourselves as God intended and designed and commanded. Clearly, there are some marked disparities between what God has designed and intended and and what we do, but I assure you that this will be a positive and encouraging message. Now, I've titled this morning's message The Product of a Promise, with the subtitle being Not the Product of an Idea. And it can contrast something that is a product or result of a promise versus something that is a product of an idea is to contrast a hope from a wish, right? Hope is commonly, we say hope, you know, we use it like we mean a wish. But a wish's strength comes from the strengths of a person's desire, right? We can, we can wish really, really hard for something. And I'm not saying you can't, um, that you can wish something into existence because we can't. But we can certainly influence an outcome with our efforts, right? We can try harder. We can work harder. We can, we can do this stuff, right? But the biblical definition of hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised, right? Hope's strength is in his promises and in his faithfulness to keep these promises. And that means that hope in the Lord is well-placed. Christian hope is in God, And it's the confident affirmation that God is faithful and he will complete what he has begun, not only in the world, but in each one of us and and you. It's also, therefore, that confident expectation that waits patiently. Sometimes we're enthusiastic, but we are to wait patiently for God's purpose to be fulfilled, right? Hurry, God, answer this prayer. Hurry, God, do this blessing. Hurry, God, send Jesus back and save us all. But we need to wait patiently. One of the reasons that we have spent the last few Sundays reminding ourselves about the character of God is to, to bolster our hope in his faithfulness, right? We need to know the one who's making these promises that are kept. Now I want to take half step back and set aside what we've heard and learned and, and experienced, because we have experienced the faithfulness of God, and consider this. What is your idea of what a God should be, right? If you didn't know anything else, you know, we, we have this innate, instinctual thing to seek some of these things, right? The, the meaning of life, for example. If Just based on, on, on that, what, what does a God look like? What should a God be, right? Strong. Strong, right? If that, that brings you courage, right? And, and, and sometimes we err on the side of, well, he needs to be mean and, and powerful meaning, you know, that he... But we have a God that's faithful and fair, and that should bring peace to us because we aren't always on the right side, are we? Right. Civilizations, civilizations since the beginning of time have, have sought to understand the unexplainable. 
We still do this today. We, we want to understand how things work. The civilizations have tried to determine what the plan and purpose for our lives are and, and to seek meaning behind everything, right? To know that there is something greater than us that is in control that, that what may otherwise seem and feel like utter chaos. Great civilizations, I do that in quotes, great civilizations have assigned for themselves deities in an attempt to satisfy this instinctive need that one true God is placed within us all, right? It's a need for him. And in the absence of him, we try to fill it with stuff or, or things or, or something in these great civilizations like the Greeks. They had Zeus and Hera and Poseidon and Hades, right? We remember these and wonderful movies made based on the same thing. They believed that there was a God of certain things. These were educated to the, to the degree that they, you know, had knowledge at the time, that they were intelligent, Romans had Jupiter, Juno, Neptune, Pluto, all these, right? Even the Bible speaks of false gods like Baal, Beelzebub, Moloch, I mean, Artemis, Ammon, Anamalek. These are, the Bible is even full of, of these other gods that people pursued. Modern religions, right? These are, these are in existence today still seek to fill these needs by pursuing the idea of multiple gods. For example, Hindus worship Vishnu and Shiva and Brahma and, and depending on the source, somewhere between 33 and 3 million deities. There may be comfort in knowing that there's something in charge of everything, but, but in there more comfort in knowing that there's one true God. And despite our differences, Christians, Catholics, Muslims, and Jews, we all worship the God of Isaac and Abraham and Moses. Now our differences, you know, fall below that. But if you go back to the beginning... Jesus was a Jew, one God, one God. We could even argue that we face competing gods, right? We don't even necessarily recognize this, but we, money, power, possessions, fame, pleasure, these things can all become gods to us and we don't look at it that way. But, but if they take away our time or attention or, or anything that belongs to God, space in our heart, in our lives, they can become false gods. We're not above this. Now, you don't have to read very far in the Bible to find out what God thinks about this. Exodus 20, verses three through six, it says, you shall have no other gods before, it says, or besides me. It's not just there won't be a God that's better than me. It's like there will be nothing else. He says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? He wants your full attention. And that's for our good. And when you read this passage in the context, beginning just one verse prior, you find these words. Verse one, and God spoke all these words. So these are God's words. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you see, God had rescued from them from slavery and led them out of Egypt and literally destroyed their persecutors as they pursued the Israelites, right? Just as he had promised to do. But what happens next? We don't even have to go very far. We don't even have to get out of Exodus, right? Moses is up. He's experiencing God in person. He's getting these commandments, right? But it says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they got impatient. It says they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods 
who will go before us. They are so hungry, so desperate for something. He says, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him, right? Where's our faith? Where's our hope? And Aaron answered them. He says, take off the gold earrings off your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool, and they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then Aaron said, I'm, you know, tomorrow we're going to have a festival. Bring your burnt offerings. We're going to have a party. We're going to worship. We're going to celebrate in front of this golden calf because our God is good. Not, not the right answer. But Moses came down. In fact, actually, God saw this because God does. He sees everything. Skip ahead to verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. It didn't take long. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Moses said, I've seen these people. Or sorry, the Lord says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, obviously, this is a, a translation, but, you know, stubborn, right? These are... He says, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Okay, God's not happy. And he said this, he warned them. He said, I am a jealous God. He says, then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should you anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with the great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And then he's, Moses pleads, he says, Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. God had made a promise. Now, we talked about this last week. We tried to answer this question. Do our prayers make a difference to a sovereign God? If God can by his almighty and all power and all knowing do whatever he wants, What's the purpose of a prayer? But here's another example of where Moses prayed and he reminded God of his promise. And it wasn't that God even changed his mind. We learned that sometimes God puts us in these positions so that we pray the right things. I don't know. I'm just, you know, maybe supposing what Moses had thought, but he had led these people out reluctantly, right? Moses didn't want to be called to this and, and he argued with God and God said, nope, 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 nope. You're the, you're the God to do this and he did. But how disheartening would it be for Moses to come off this mountain and see how long was I gone? How long were we even out of Egypt before you guys went back to your old ways? This is not a new problem, right? Paul did the same thing as he was writing these early letters to the church. He's like, gosh, how long has it been? And you guys are already going back into your wickedness and letting other people influence you. Are we not doing the same thing in society in some respects now? We know God is good. We've seen him do miraculous things in our own lives and answer our prayers but we still are somewhat open or at least getting influenced by the things around us that are contrary to our sovereign God. But like I said, unfortunately, this wasn't the last time that people of God would seek other gods. Judges 2, 12 through 13, it says, And they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, right? Peer pressure. 
and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Astaroth. Some of these gods I mentioned a minute ago. Joshua, you're going to recognize this verse here in a second. This is 24, 14 through 15. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped before the Euphrates River and in Egypt to serve the Lord. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors served before the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We know that. You see that, you know, people put that in their houses just as a reminder. But you have to understand this is more than a stubborn or opinionated man. Joshua wasn't just this man who was just bucking society's rules and the peer pressure, right? So I want to read this in context. And this is why we, we read the Bible, not just one verse at a time. I'm going I'm to do a little extensive reading here, so I appreciate your patience. But we're reading from the book of Joshua. And I'm going to start at verse 1 of 24. So, it says, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel... He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to, the, to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Okay, this is God talking, reminding him. He says, then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egypts by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. He says, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. You see what's going on here? He's telling the story of his promises. Verse 11, it says, Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gergesites, Hivites, and Jebusites. This is usually where I make a joke about the Gazunites, the blessed people. Okay. But I gave you into their hands. I sent the hornets ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you the land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Okay, now we get to the verse we know. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. And he says, as for me, we will serve the Lord. And you know what happened? The people responded. In fact, they said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And Joshua said, he says, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. But the people said, no, we will serve the Lord. I'm paraphrasing a little bit now. It says, you 
have witnessed against yourselves that you have chosen another Lord. And they said, no, we are witness to this promise that we will serve the one true God. And they made a covenant promise with God. You heard Joshua's statements. This wasn't based on an idea. From the text, you can see Joshua's faithfulness to God was based on promises that God had kept through generations. Joshua reminded God's people of this and they were restored. Their faithfulness restored. They remembered the promises kept, the hope that they had been given. You see, if an idea works out, it just proves it's a good idea. Now, guys, we're good at this, right? If we try to do something and it works, I was right. It was a good idea. But when a promise is kept, it instills trust as our faith is met with God's promises, right? Our hope is substantiated and our confidence is further strengthened because God has yet again fulfilled a promise. What kind of promises have you seen kept in your life? We make promises between each other, right? When we give a, a, medding, a, a wedding vow, a marriage, right? That's a covenant promise. That's a promise that's intended to be kept. Promise when we were to raise our children the best we can, right? Promises between uh, friends. But we're, we struggle with these. But God is perfect in his promise. We can all think of something that has happened that lets us know that God is there and he loves us and he hears us and he's in control. Sometimes it's an answered prayer. We claim some of those this morning in our prayer time. Sometimes it's an unanswered prayer because God does something different than what we think we want or need because he knows better. Maybe it's delivery from a crisis, right? Is it a deliverance you didn't even know occurred? How many times maybe has God moved some pieces around so you weren't at a certain place at a certain time when something would have happened because God protected you? You know, there's a grand total of 8,810 promises. I did not read them myself. Someone had taken the time to research and they actually broke it down. They said, of those 8,810 promises, 7,487 of them were promises made between God and mankind, not God and a specific individual for a specific situation. That many. Some of my favorite and how we can respond, God is always with you, so you should not fear. God is always in control, so you will not doubt. God is always good, so you will not despair. God is always watching, so you will not be on your own or falter. And God is always victorious, so you will not fail. Some others I rely on daily, and probably you do too, that God will be our strength. God will hear our prayers and will answer them. God will provide for us. There's so many things in our, in our lives that, that we take for granted, right? Just having the basic necessities is a provision of God that he will give us peace. This is my favorite promise. Man, if all else fails, if I've got peace even in the darkest days, that is a blessing. And the best of all, he will always love you. And these aren't just good ideas about what a God should be like. Right? These aren't the fictitious things to say, yeah, God should love us, and that would be a good God. These are real promises that God has put in writing right here. And he wants you not only to know them, but to experience them. Do you recognize them? Have you relied on them? I bet you have. I bet you have. But have you thanked him for that?
Friends, I want to encourage you to claim God's many promises and respond to them with appreciation and then be filled with hope. And I mean the real hope that they provide. I want to challenge you to read them for yourself. Yes, all 8,000 plus. I want you to read them. And if you need a little jump start, I can offer this tool. Okay, I found these. 162 promises of God from Scripture. Okay, I've got a stack of them. Believe them back or I'll email them to you. They are not by any means the end-all, be-all, complete list. But here's five promises of strength, 32 promises of provision, 10 promises of eternal life, 16 promises of deliverance. There's hope in God's word, hope in God's promise. You know, life is difficult. It is. There are troubles. This is another one of the things you can rely on, that there will be troubles. But here's something else. God is with you and he has overcome the world. And if you don't understand what that means, and I know sometimes we do and sometimes we struggle with that, or if you need some support, encouragement, let me hear from you. God has encouraging words for you. We're gonna dive into that a little more next week. Let's pray. Father God, promise maker, promise keeper, We stand on your promises today and every day going forward. So many promises you've made to us. And at various times, we may need to hear one a little more than another. But God, we know you love us, you care for us. You want a relationship with us. You've gone through enormous measures to make sure that that is possible. You reach your hand down, you've sent your son down so that we can take it and be with you. Lord, you have created us. You know us. You know our innermost being. You know our our hearts. You know what we want. But you also know our struggles, our shortcomings, our failures. Lord, we ask that you continue to forgive us and help us to try harder to seek you, to, to put in that effort, not just to wish for a relationship with you, but to rely on the hope that this relationship is possible. God, may today's just 20 minutes just serve as a powerful reminder of what you have done for us and that we can rely on you. We claim these promises in your son's name because that is how you told us to do this. Amen.